The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Allow me. But it's rubbish, monsieur. Now perhaps. Someday, it might be valuable. Never. That fellow hasn't had a play that's lasted more than two nights. The tragedy of Louis XV lasted three. Yeah, but nobody came the third night. Not a soul. Throw it away, monsieur, I promise you. That man is destined for total obscurity. The public are pigs, Jules. Always remember that. We artists create the pearls. And the public tamples on them. It's the way of the world. Am I really giving them pearls, Felix? Oh, yes, you are. Of course. Otherwise, why would they tumble them? One day, then, we will laugh at our early struggles. Truth is, Felix, I may have made a terrible mistake. I may not be a writer at all. You know what separates the successful artist from the failure? Mm. Belief in himself. <laughs> what about talent? Talent? Talent for what, Philippe? Talent for getting the most out of life, Bridget. That's what really counts. To talent. Yeah, whatever. One day. Talent or no talent, I'm going to earn enough to afford a decent glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> With my friends in the cafes, I could convince myself that I was on the road to success. But up in my garret, cold, alone, and hungry, it was harder. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 13, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today, our second in 2011, eh, Robert? Yeah. Where our theme, boy, we bit off a big one today, didn't we? We thought we could cover this one in a It's like I said show. to you on the phone the other day, <laughs> we could create an entire program surrounding on this just issue. Just these themes. Today we're going to be talking about copyright and censorship in a very broad sense. We want to take a look at the true nature of copyright. Well, now look at the moral dilemma, which seems to be the biggie. Are you a thief when you copy you know, TV shows and your favorite music on your favorite electronic device. Also, you want to look at influencing thought through force and coercion. Why censorship? Is it necessary? Is it sometimes desirable? Are censorship and copyright perhaps related in some ways? We'll take a look at some of these issues, and if you care to join in on the conversation, the number to call is, as always, 519-661-3600. And as always as well, please email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org to let us know your opinions on this subject, because I'll tell you, I'm not too sure that we're going to have the greatest of resolutions by the end of the show, but we do have some directions to point in. So I guess today Robert and I plan to uh, rationalize our guilt <laughs> over copying and trading TV shows and movies for free. We, like probably every person listening to this broadcast, have no doubt, quote-unquote, violated copyright in the course of our media consumption. 
And you could be violating copyright even when you don't know you're doing so. So is there a moral issue involved? Yes, I think so. Should I feel guilty? No, no, I don't think so. But maybe in some cases. Let's take a look at that. It's been a few years since I last visited the issue of copyright back in June 2008 when I presented a primer on copyright principles and then in, in uh, the, you know, the context of the federal government's Bill C-51, which has since passed by the wayside. But there's new copyright legislation coming up and it's all got the same basic issues in it that the old copyright legislation proposed had. We'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, just to give you an interesting... Here's a little sort of a, a side story. You know, I was looking at the December 26th 2007 National Post reports, and I quote, that Egypt's parliament is expected to pass a law that will, quote, prohibit the duplication of historic Egyptian monuments around the world and demand royalties from offenders. But most likenesses, such as the Luxor Hotel, Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas, would be exempt if they're not 100% copies, an official said. <laughs> Can you imagine, Robert? You've got to be kidding me. I'm not kidding. It's right in the front page of the, of the National Post. But what I found interesting, and this is something that I think almost sets a backdrop to the whole issue of copyright, is this story I saw in the National Post where there appeared a full-page um, brief history of copyright written by Peter Sean Taylor in which he relates the following story. This was June 6, 2008. And a fascinating story. It involves Canada and the United States. In 1881, legendary writer Mark Twain paid a visit to Montreal. He was there to prevent a crime. Quote, to fence and fortify one's property against the literary buccaneer, end quote, as he put it to a local banquet. Twain wanted to protect his latest book, The Prince and the Pauper, from Canadian copyright pirates. He moved there prior to publishing the book to establish residency, and thus Canadian copyright. That's how you got it, right? You had to live in the country. To his chagrin, the Federal Minister of Agriculture turned down Twain's application. Canadian copyright was available only to permanent residents, not to visitors. The humorist was not amused, but the debate was not over. Book readers and populist publishers argued that copyright was merely a device to prevent the masses from gaining an education. Teachers and politicians argued that spreading knowledge cheaply and broadly was a goal that outweighed any claim authors might have to their work. And since before Confederation, Canadian parliaments had been trying to ignore British copyright laws in the hopes of building up a domestic publishing business in the same manner as the Americans. You know, does history repeat itself, Robert? <laughs> Matter of fact, there's an editorial in the Free Press today <laughs> talking about how the Canadian magazine industry deserves its tens of millions of dollars in subsidies. Well, gee... But to continue this story, copyright is a concept that grants authors exclusive commercial rights to their own work, dates back to the reign of Britain's Queen Anne in 1710. But without international copyright deals, writers could only benefit, benefit from books they published in their home country. One of the biggest beneficiaries of this circumstance was none other than Benjamin Franklin. Amongst his many accomplishments, Franklin was also the first great transatlantic copyright pirate. He got his start in Pennsylvania producing self-help books and almanacs filled with content stolen from British and French writers. See, it isn't so. <laughs> it is so. <laughs> Despite frequent complaints from Scott, Charles Dickens, and others, American copyright law had been designed specifically to permit transatlantic piracy. That was literally the purpose of copyright law. <laughs> Copyright was slightly more civilized in Britain. 
Beginning in 1842, Westminster agreed to recognize the rights of international authors. Now get this. Provided they published their book first in Britain. If an author failed to get his version out before the pirates, however, he lost the copyright to his own work. Isn't that something? It's disgraceful. By the turn of the 20th century, relentless lobbying from authors led the United States to accept the concept of international copyright. And book pirating came to an abrupt end. Those with the most to lose have the greatest motivation to act. The owners and authors will win in the end, concludes the author of this National Post article that I just read. So what can we learn from this story, Robert? What do you think? Anything that catches you from just hearing that story? Historically, it's very interesting, but I think that we uh, can all agree that in some form or another, we need copyright laws. It's only fair for the author. I agree. But, you know, really what I got from it was absolutely nothing's changed in the nature of the copyright debate since the very beginning of mass publication and distribution. That's what started it all, the printing press, you know, anything... Technology. Technology, Has basically. driven copyright laws in the sense. And that's always been the issue, as it is today. Mm-hmm. In our schools today, calls are out for exemption from copyright fees, or, uh, copyright fees rather, for school-related materials, <laughs> such as the ones for schools in the U.S., according to a London Free Press report on October 17, 2009. At that time, and I quote, the Thames Valley District School Board has received an invoice for $828,563, enough to hire nine full-time teachers. The London District Catholic School Board's retroactive bill was $233,775.89. They didn't throw away the penny. (laughs) In Ontario, the total bill is $16 million. Wow. The invoices follow a decision in June 2009 by the Copyright Board of Canada, which ruled that the tariff school boards across Canada to pay to use copyrighted materials, teachers photocopy as part of their curriculum, would double. Retroactive to 2005. Notice they call it a tariff. It's devastating. We're in the business of educating students not paying copyright bills, said Colleen Schenck, president of the Ontario Public School <coughs> Boards Association. End quote. Now, you know, instead of copyright wars between Canada, the U.S., and Britain, today's copyright pirates are the nations of the Southeast, including, of course, China, (laughs) which is now routing about 20% of the worldwide Internet traffic through its own servers. As reported in the September 26, 2009, Economist headed Public Morals and Private Property, quote, because foreign entertainment companies cannot sell their products in China, they cannot claim damages from the pirates. In other words, they don't have commercial rights, right? If you don't have commercial rights, end of end of copyright. Forget it. You know, foreign spluttering has had little effect. Observers had assumed the government would crack, not crack down until there was a domestic constituency demanding action, but now, for unexpected reasons, there is. End quote. Now, the Economist may not have found the recent drive to protect copyright in China unexpected. Um, had the writer been aware of copyright history in the other parts of the world. The reason that the Chinese government is now interested in protecting copyright, I think, rather than violating it, is for the same reason the United States and Canada eventually came around. China now has a domestic industry that wants its own protection from piracy, right? If you want, if you want to give freedom, you've got to take it. You know, it's a two-way street. And as always, you cannot protect one person's right without protecting all. Another thing that we see today is Canadian content rules which effectively violate the copyright and distribution rights of creators who are outside the country trying to sell us their creations. Although copyright is supposedly a commercial right, 
governments nevertheless enact Canadian content rules for the express purpose of commercial and financial gain. Isn't that interesting? And not to protect creators from consumers who are trading in their products, per se. Just as with Mark Twain, today's Canadian content laws give unearned commercial rights to Canadians based on their nationality and taxpayer status, the carriers, the cable companies. You know, that's just replace that word with publishers, you know, Canadian publishers. Canadian carriers get a monopoly to distribute American programming on Canadian networks, even with special rights on cable to override simulcast American broadcasts with Canadian signals. So there's, to me, that's all copyright theft in the, in the broadest sense of the term. If we're going to talk about it the way they define it and say what its purpose is, obviously they're violating the purpose of copyright all the time. And there are many others, libraries, radio stations, television stations, they all do it in the course of normal uh, normal day's activity, but they do it in different circumstances, some through licensing, some through permission. And this issue gets really complicated. And, you know, the debate really continues unabated, and I don't think it'll ever end until we clearly understand that copyright is not a property right as such. I think we've been looking at it a little wrong that way. And it's perhaps one of the most unique situations we have both in law and moral principles in human history. It's a really different situation. Right now, the debate essentially consists of one side, you've got authors and producers, demanding total control of their artistic work and ideas through government enforcement, while the other extreme is, you know, the everything should be free argument, including free of government in any form. And of course, every option in between these two extremes. In the January 10, 2011 London Free Press business lawyer and trademark agent in his regular column, Today's Business Law, uh, reported that uh, Bill C-32, the Copyright Modernization Act, is the latest attempt to update the Copyright Act. This is the one that's up now. Controversial elements include digital lock provisions that will allow publishers to trump user rights. It is likely this bill will become law, unlike the several failed attempts over the past few years. One certain thing about copyright reform is that the details will make some people happy and will disappoint others, depending on whether one's a consumer or a producer of content. End quote. Now, you know, that's kind of patently obvious, pardon the pun, <laughs> uh, yet it's constantly repeated. But to me, the question is, will the copyright laws be rational and just? That's the real question to me. Essentially, the details of Bill C-32 are the same as those of previous bills that did not get passed. So I didn't want to get into all of those details myself. I thought you might want to hear it from an expert. And coming up in this next break is uh, Carmi Levy of AR Communications, who was interviewed on CBC back on uh, June 12, 2008. And this is um, that interview where he was talking about the details of the proposed Copyright Act at that time, which, of course, he said wasn't going to pass, but it's all the same details in the current act. So no difference, just change in time. Take a break now. We'll be right back pick a winner, um, it would have to be those who create the content because they finally have a framework within which their, their rights as copyright owners are protected and they can then go out and actually sell their content without worrying about it being picked up and copied around the world. Does this apply equally to, to everyone from people who write books to create music, videos, etc.? Yes, the, the legislation really doesn't make any definition or, or differentiation between uh, written contents, music or movies. Content is content. How much money is at stake here? Uh, billions. So how many books are sold uh, in Canada every year? How much music? How many movies? This is a huge industry. The ramifications are huge as well, and everyone has an interest. Will the companies involved be satisfied? 
Probably not. Um, copyright's the kind of thing that, uh, it, to a certain degree, no one is ever going to be really satisfied with because it's a constantly moving target. Technology moves, moves too fast for legislation to keep up. And so it's really, the question is, is it good enough for today? Oh, well, are there any businesses who might have liked to stick with the status quo? Well, certainly consumers who are downloading music for free and want to get away with it forever, absolutely. Um, but obviously artists have wanted to have their rights protected. And uh, also distributors, um, uh, they don't want to be held liable for, for example, users who are downloading... Distributors are internet service uh, providers. Internet service providers, um, you know, they, sh they don't want to be held liable and they also don't want to be cops. Uh, they don't want to have to enforce this legislation on behalf of the government because that's not the business, the business that they're in. Now. There's a, a clause about innovation protection written in. What is that? What's that for? Under the existing Copyright Act, um, you can be prosecuted for violating certain parts of it if you introduce new technologies that, for example, violate the Digital Rights Management or DRM that's embedded in a lot of the music or electronic content today. So this innovation protection, what it does is it allows people to create new technologies um, to enhance the entertainment experience without necessarily worrying about being prosecuted for it. A lot of people have said, well, the you know, the recording industry in particular and the movie industry and the video business, these people don't want to move forward. And does this legislation cave into them? Um, not really, because you can't legislate consumer behavior. And unfortunately for the record in the movie industry, they have failed to come up with a mass market, commercially viable form of distributing their content over the internet. The music industry has essentially collapsed over the last decade because downloading music has been relatively simple. A lot of people are doing it illegally. And so you can legislate until the cows come home, but at some point the, 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 the studios and the companies have to come up with a way to sell their stuff online and make money at it. But are, are young people who are used to doing this going to be frustrated? Uh, no, because if they were downloading music illegally yesterday, they're going to be downloading music illegally tomorrow. What the legislation does not stipulate is enforcement. It doesn't say that they're going to be investing more money in that. In your view, is this the copyright legislation that was needed? Um, it's it's it, A certain copyright legislation was needed. It certainly doesn't go far enough. Uh, you're probably going to have more complaints than, uh, than, uh, than applause. Um, but then again, I don't think it'll ever be good enough. Uh, will it ever get through Parliament? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't bet my mortgage on it because, uh, you know, it, it, it could die before parli parliamentary recess. It could very easily die before, uh, before, before, before uh, potential elections. So um, I think the government wanted to go down on record as having introduced something. That's uh, it. And before we go, did, do you have any uh, relationships with companies who are involved in this at all? I have none. I sit on the sidelines and observe unbiased. Well, that's good. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Fred. Customers, show them your ID, Farf. We are investigators with the Citizens Protection Bureau. Yeah, I understand that, but still, without a proper... Three people were killed in this building last night. We don't need a warrant. You don't understand. This is a very sensitive room. I think he understands perfectly well, Simon. What may we do for you, Detective Hume? We found a fragment of a programming disc in a building where a second android was killed today. Just, just such violence. It seems we did make the right decision sending the good doctor to Mars. I think it's a recall disc. 
we don't use discs anymore. You don't use discs. What do you use? That information is protected by the Intellectual Property Law and Corporate Security Act. Hey, it's a murder investigation. Three humans and one android were killed in this very building. Now I got a second dead android. It might all be linked to recall. Detective My investigatory powers supersede your stinking security act. Do they? Interesting, you know, that scenario from Total Recall 2070, which suggests that um, copyright could be used as censorship in the future. Already is now. We heard that from Mark and Connie Fournier when they were on the show. Interesting, they, they also use the word property to define yes. copyright. And another issue that came up, well, by the way, I don't use discs anymore either. And, I, <laughs> and you know, they're talking about the music industry collapsing too in the previous clip. And I, and I wonder if it's really because of copying or because of the dra dramatic changes in technology itself and people don't want to use the old technology anymore. That's what it's been with me. And I don't think that they've caught up to the amazing opportunities that the new technology is creating for the creators. That's part of the problem. Uh, consumers have been brought up in a really interesting environment with regards to this, but there's a couple of things we have to watch out for. Uh, I brought this up the last time we looked at copyright, and one is this is one of those rare instances where you don't follow the money or you'll get lost because simply paying for copyrighted material does not resolve the copyright issue. Okay, The fact that you paid for it doesn't change anything. So that whole argument of payment is irrelevant. What about the idea now, that we're taxed on our uh, cassette tapes and uh, well, that's, blank that's, CDs because the money is supposedly going to go to go artists? Doesn't it give us carte blanche to it, download it? It does, and I agree with you. And that's just another one of those things government has done to confuse the situation. But basically, you have to realize that whether you pay for a product or not, it changes nothing with regard to your status and copyright. You could have paid for it still be charged for copyright under certain con conditions and not under other certain conditions. And so with that in mind, I think the first thing to do is, I, uh, this is one thing I did before, and I think, we, you know, it, it's, it's our responsibility to do that, and that's to give the legal definition of what copyright is mm -hmm. in Canada. And I got this from the Canadian Law Dictionary. And the very first two words <laughs> say so much. An incorporeal right. <laughs> incorporeal. Which, which mean, that means that's something that has no material existence. No physicality. No physicality. Subsisting in a work of art, literature, music, film, pictures, etc., in favor of the author of such a work, and is protected by the Copyright Act of Canada. The first Canadian Copyright Act was passed in 1868 and was succeeded over the years by new enactments. Under the Geneva Convention of 1952, to which Canada became a party in 1962, international copyright is obtained without any formalities by first placing on the work the symbol, you know, a little copyright symbol with the C, mm -hmm. identifying the name of the copyright holder in the, first, in the year of the first publication. The right of an author to his work can be assigned. Now, here's this interesting. Although the mere transfer of a property in a work of art does not thereby necessarily amount to an assignment of the incorporeal right of copyright. The incorporeal right, and then there's the physical right, and then there's the make-believe right? You know what I'm saying here? The Copyright Act is not concerned with ideas or the originality of, of ideas, for there is no copyright in the same. It is the language or the expression of the idea which is the subject matter of copyright. Aside from the Copyright Act, at common law, the author of a literary composition has an undoubted right to the piece of paper on which his composition is written and to the copies which he chooses to make of it for himself 
and for others. If he lends a copy to another, his right is not gone. If he sends it to another under an implied understanding that he's not to part with it or publish it, he has a right to enforce that undertaking, end quote. Now, is that different from most property rights that you've ever heard of, Robert? It's completely different. Completely different. It's, so that's why I'm contesting the very fact that I think we're using the word property a little incorrectly here. There is a right involved, and there is, uh, it's more of a, an agreement than it is a property issue. It's, it's got much more to do with uh, contract. Now, and of course, it's not an issue of public versus private. It's an issue of private interests versus private interests and deciding who has the greater interest. Um, and then there's the issue of the Internet itself. Is the Internet a private domain or is it public? That's, that's being debated. Is it a, is it a broadcasting medium, uh, which is how potential regulators would like to look at it? And of course, we're not talking about plagiarism or anything like that. That clearly vi violates that incorporeal right part of the of the whole legislation. But what's happened recently is the torrent site demonoid.com, now demonoid.me, found its domain site seized by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement without any prior takedown notice or specific allegations of infringing activity. And I found it interesting, on the homepage of this site, you will find a disclaimer, quote, none of the files shown here are actually hosted or transmitted by this server. The links are provided solely by this site's users. The site moderation is also a service provided by the site's users. The administrator of this site cannot be held responsible for what its users post or any other actions of its users. You may not use this site to distribute or download any material when you do not have the legal right to do so. It is your own responsibility to adhere to these terms. By using this site, you indicate your agreement to our terms and conditions. So they wrote that on the site. And I'm thinking that that disclaimer which is how people are trading movies now through torrents and issues like that. You've done it, I've done it. Um, warning terms and conditions, you know, they're, they're, that, that posting is very much like what you see on the copyright materials themselves when you see a DVD, you know, or a videotape. You see similar terms and conditions. So why blame the videotape, DVD, or software package for copyright violations? It's not the fault of the object or the technology. Now, here's the critical point, the moral issue. I think from a moral viewpoint, the consumer of unauthorized copyrighted copies is less culpable of any discretion than the distributor in certain cases, although that's a touch, touchy case. Because the consumer has no way of knowing or enforceably consenting to, by way of signature of contract, whether it's okay or not to download a, copy, a particular copyrighted content. Remember, all written and performed creation is copyrighted. We just heard that in the law, both under copyright law and under common law. So everything you hear, everything you see, everything is out there is copyrighted. Yes. And, but the varying creators of copyrighted material who have this right to this material, incorporeal though it is, which is by law all material, have differing views and strategies on how to control and distribute their own products. Believe it or not, most of them, if you really took a literal count, most would want their material to be available freely as the power of free begins to impress itself upon them. Uh, you know, this was the original idea behind free broadcasting on television and radio, and that's the environment in which North Americans have been brought up in. Programming was paid for by advertisers, who were thus encouraged to see the show on which they were advertising be given as wide a possible audience as you can get and for free. That was the idea. Get it, in, you know, get, get it out there, right? And, uh, and that was the deal. That was the goal. Fully paid for. No further obligations on anybody's part. 
And that's the environment which North American consumers were sort of brought up in, if you want to <laughs> call it that way. Very unlike Europe, where we learned on a previous show that just owning a TV set incurs a state tax, whether you watch it or not, copyright or not. This is having creative material forced upon you, and consider the implications. Technology in the hands of private individuals is the main state target on both continents, which I find interesting. And of course, all this started when, along with the reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape recorder, the videotape recorder, and the electronic world has never been the same since. But the copyright issues are no different today than they were when Mark Twain was in Canada trying to prevent Canadians from printing unauthorized editions of his books. Um, I don't know if you agree with this or not, Robert, but this is kind of a conclusion I've been seeing. Copyright laws in practice, okay, in practice, work to the interests of those who have the most powerful political pull. On the one side, you've got the financially successful creators of copyrighted material. They have the money. On the other side, you've got consumers of such material, and they've got the numbers necessary to win votes. <laughs> okay? <laughs> So the question is open as to who has the most political pull, and I think that's probably why the issue has been left unresolved for so long. To say nothing of the less than virtuous history of copyright protection, such as it has been. So, uh, you know, you brought up earlier, Robert, blank videotapes, or, you know, blank audio tapes. Sheila Copps introduced that, you know. Virtually a license to copy copyrighted material. And I remember when I was using audio tapes back in those days, I wasn't using it to copy anybody's material. I was using it to put my own stuff on them and mm -hmm. distribute it. And yet I had to pay a copyright fee that was given money to somebody else through the government. That's right. You're a bit of, of a musician yourself. Yeah, well, not just musician, but even there are talk shows. And mm -hmm. we did a lot of stuff like that. I got libraries full of and them. And yet I had you were to pay taxed. And your tax goes to other to, to, to my competitors who are on exactly. an approved list of... Yes. Artists. And then you've got, um, you know, you have all the movie and TV production tax credits. How many of the TV shows that I've seen have, you know, Quebec tax credit, Canadian tax credit, Ontario? They work with France, they work with Germany. So, in a sense, we actually, as taxpayers, own those films or have a well, vested interest in We have in those an interest. That's, that can be said. We can't say we own it. I don't know mm -hmm. who owns it. Who but owns, we do have a pecuniary interest in those owns, films. Who owns any idea, you know? And uh, to what degree might taxpayers forced to subsidize such, quote, copyrighted material against their will be entitled to enjoy the programming they paid for without fear of being charged? Mm -hmm. What about all the programming they paid for that they never saw and don't care to see and don't want to see or ever intend to see? Or um, object to. Or object to and yet have to be forced to pay for. So you see... Copyright almost becomes a joke in an environment like this because there's not much of a free market in broadcasting or publishing. True copyrights, I don't think, can really exist in a socially socialist-minded distribution network. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to free. I think that's great. National Post wrote in an editorial, you know, protect creators, respect consumers. The public has demonstrated by its behavior that it wants to own works of the imagination and not merely license them. So, you know, I think the solution to this and the ultimate long term is that you have to beat the pirates at their own game. Give away shows for free, but like I got I think one thing they could do, for example, torrents. You know torrents are. These are the oh, shows yes. you get. But they're just TV shows. You still have ABC, NBC, CBS on them. You can get them the day after by because people are trading them. Um, why don't the networks themselves make that available like that? But put all the ads at the end. And I'll bet you they'd still have 50% of the people who download them watch those ads. There's actually people who collect ads. And collect ads. And not only that, they did studies where they feared that 
um, the videotape recorder would end advertisers' control over the viewers, but then they found out the average viewer of a video, video machine lets the ads run anyways and watches them. They don't scan through them. Hmm. So, interesting. There's no quick answer to this, but uh, we want to open up another dimension of this whole debate as we come to the bottom of the hour. And uh, what you're going to hear right now is... Um, a very interesting issue that deals with, I guess, mostly the author's rights, even in a situation where he's got all his copyright issues uh, controlled, but he has to deal with a sponsor or someone else who is paying the tune. And this, of course, is the late Rod Serling, who was interviewed by Mike Wallace on September 22, 1959, which I understand was the eve of the premiere of Twilight Zone yes, Twilight before anybody Zone. ever seen it. So uh, that's what you're going to be hearing on this side and the other side of the bumper. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation from there. This is Mike Wallace with another television interview in our gallery of colorful people. In television drama, few names have the prestige of that of our guest. Ron Serling is the only writer to have won three Emmy Awards for Requiem for a Heavyweight, Patterns, The Comedian. We'll talk to him about censorship in television, his fight to say what he believes. You've come a long way since those early days, and perhaps more than any other writer, your name is figured in the classic battle of the, that is, television writer, uh, the battle of the writer to be his own man. What happens when a writer like yourself writes something that he really believes in for television? I'm not sure I understand the question. Like, what happens, you mean, in terms of... Well, we hear a lot about censorship of the writer on TV. We oh, heard I see a good deal saying. about it in your own case, especially. Well, depending, of course, on the thematic treatment you're using, if you have the temerity to try to dramatize a theme that involves any particular social controversy currently extant, then you're in deep trouble. For instance? Uh, a racial theme, for example. My the case in point, I think, uh, a show I did for the Steel Hour some years ago, three years ago, called Noon on Doomsday, yeah. which was uh, a story which purported to tell what was the aftermath of the alleged kidnapping in Mississippi of the Tillboy, yeah. the young Chicago Negro. And I wrote the script using black and white uh, initially. Then it was changed uh, to suggest an unnamed foreigner. Then the locale was moved from the south to, the, to New England. And I'm convinced they'd have gone up to Alaska or the North Pole if and using Eskimos as a possible minority, except I suppose the costume problem was of sufficient severity not to attempt it. But it became a lukewarm, vitiated, emasculated kind of show. You went along with it? All the way. I protested. I went down fighting, as most television writers do, yeah. thinking in a strange, oblique, philosophical way that better say something than nothing. In this particular show, though, by the time they had finished taking Coca-Cola bottles off the set because the sponsor claimed that this had southern connotations, suggesting to what depth they went to make this a clean, antiseptically, rigidly uh, acceptable show. Uh, why it bore no relationship at all to what we had purported to say in initially. understand the position of the sponsor. Can't I, you? In, in many ways, I suppose I can. He's there to push a product. He has a considerable stake, thus, in what goes on the air. Most assuredly. And in those cases uh, where, we, where, there, where there is a, a problem of, of, of public taste, 
in which there is a concern for, for uh, eliciting negative response from a large mass of people. I can understand why the guys are frightened. Sure. I don't understand, Mike, for example, other evidences and instances of, of intrusion by sponsors. For example, on Playhouse 90, not a year ago, a lovely show called Judgment at Nuremberg. Uh, I think probably one of the most competently done and artistically done pieces that 90's done all year. In it, as you recall, uh, mention was made of gas chambers. Yeah. And the line was deleted, cut off the, cut off the, cut off the uh, soundtrack. And uh, it, might, it mattered little to these guys that the gas involved in concentration camps was cyanide, which bore no resemblance, physical or otherwise, to, to the gas used in stowed. They cut the line. Because the sponsor was... He did not want that awful association made between what was the horror and the misery of Nazi Germany with the nice, chrome, wonderfully antiseptically clean, beautiful kitchen appliances that they were selling. Now, this is an, is an example of sponsor interference, which is so beyond logic and which is so beyond taste. This I rebel against. Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call and join in the conversation on censorship and copyright at 519-661-3600. And that's where we're about to take the topic today from, from um, copyright to censorship. And I think that interview with Mike Wallace of Rod Serling back in 1959 stands as an example, Bob, of an artist's conflict with private well, censorship. He must have been one frustrated guy, eh? Indeed. <laughs> and Serling quite rightly recognizes the sponsors of his stories had a, a legitimate interest in what a broadcast... Uh, sure. ...in what is broadcast, since it's their product, which is going to be associated with the artist's creation, and it's the producer's money, which it's, is invested in the same. As I understand it, that's why he went to do Twilight Zone, so he could deal with those issues in an abstract way that wouldn't offend so many people and sponsors. Exactly. Yeah. Science fiction. Science fiction was always the way out. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're no longer talking about a black boy in the South. You're yeah. now talking Klingons about an alien. What, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know? The theme was the same. Right. Right. Now contrast this private censorship that Serling had to undergo with the kind of censorship a government might impose on its citizens. Take, for example, the Ontario Film Review Board's rating of a movie. The board's former name, by the way, was the Board of Censors. They just changed the name, but the intent and the motivation of this body is not changed at all. If a movie depicts scenes which goes against what the individual board members deem as being against community standards, and, of course, by community standards, we mean, of course, each board member's individual standards of what they mm -hmm. think is good or bad. It's impossible to determine community standards. Then the board might either expunge from the movie the offending scene, or they may threaten the producer with an R rating, which would have the effect of diminishing the return on the investment of those who funded the film. This power to rate a film is, in effect, a de facto ability to censor a film. It is the use of force against an artist or a film producer to either change the content of the film or risk reducing your potential audience. Now, it's interesting you used the word private censorship when you first started there, and I know what you mean by that, although censorship is really only a government act. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if there is a place for that term in the sense of one censoring oneself, not out of... Quote, you what, just used what, it, what by you, the way. Huh? You just uh, used well, it. No, that's why I'm, I'm using it to, 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 to demonstrate the sense of it. Mm -hmm. Not in the sense of... Um, saying something, I always tell you private censorship is just choice, right? Somebody exercising their choice because nobody else told them to do it. But when you quote censor yourself because of a fear of a reaction such as Rod Serling agreed to, mm -hmm. that, is that censorship? Maybe it is. You know, I'm going to use the word you know censorship I mean? in this private word. sense, yeah. but I know exactly what you mean. Right now you're dealing with the word choice. Sure. 
an individual is making a choice, whether it's the artist, the producer, the, the distributor, whatever. They're making choices based on economic reasons or whatever other reasons not to offend people. Those are choices. Yes, but the consequence of such a choice is bad ratings or poor reputation, whereas the consequence of government censorship is fines and jails. And uh, force, yes. Yeah, the force. use that's of force, and that's thing. the yeah. difference, yeah. So but I'm going to use aware. the word censorship yeah. mm-hmm. to do, in the sense of a private choice. The history of the um, ORB, by the way, Bob, goes back... Uh, about a, almost a 90 years, I think, where instances were blatant, political banning and censoring, such as the wartime newsreels. Sure. Uh, they were banned for propaganda reasons. The majority of well, more the fil- yeah, the current censoring, though, was of a sexual or violent nature. Wasn't the National Film Board created for the purpose of propaganda? Oh, and it still is. Yeah. <laughs> it still exists for that purpose. <laughs> a more bro- brutal form of government censoring and banning can be seen with today's human rights commissions and tribunals, which in their interpretation of the completely fascist human rights code have found guilty people who have expressed opinions which, in the wording of Section 3 of the Canadian Human Rights Code, are, quote, likely to expose a person or persons to, quote, hatred or contempt, unquote, by reason of the fact that that person or those persons are identifiable on the basis of a prohibited grounds of discrimination, unquote. Now, this section of the code has been re- uh, responsible for a continuing witch hunt of people who might be expressing political or religious views which disagrees with the personal opinions of the members of these nefarious boards and tribunals. These are examples where censorship in Canada has gotten much worse than simply banning films like Deep Throat, Pretty Baby, or even the award-winning The Tin Drum. But censorship in Canada is not simply the banning of movies. The Two Live Crew album, as nasty as they want to be, remember that, was Mm -hmm. banned as obscene in several jurisdictions uh, in Canada and, uh, for example, southern Florida. And uh, local freedom activist Mark Emery was convicted of selling the album. Uh, The album went on to be the Two Live Crew's most successful not due some small part to the parental advisory sticker placed on the album cover. Sure. So censorship may have lessened somewhat in Canada when it comes to sex and violence over the years, but has dramatically increased when it comes to the expression of political and religious thought, which is a much more nefarious and dangerous. It used to form be exactly the other way around. Exactly. Yeah. Such notable. Not that I'm not that I'm advocating the other way around no. either. <laughs> of course not. Such notable Canadians as Ezra Levant and Mark Stein have been dragged before these commissions to explain their political beliefs. Even the eminent Maclean's magazine has suffered the same humiliation before these kangaroo courts. Political correctness is another form of censorship which can be either a private or of a, a government nature. Now, if privately conducted, there is often a good reason for it. For an example, um, having employees say happy holidays when greeting customers at the door rather than Merry Christmas to be sensitive to the broad spectrum or background of their customers. Now, when the government, however, uses the force of the law to command that individuals and businesses hold sensitivity training sessions, for example, to instruct employees on how to behave with members of the opposite sex, then we're witnessing a misuse of force and fascism at work. Most of the time, the banning or censoring of a product, whether done privately or through the threat of fines and imprisonment, has the opposite effect intended by those doing the censoring or banning. Take, for example, the banning of the fourth highest grossing film in Britain in 1979, Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it tells the story of Brian Cohen, a man who was born on the same day as, and next door to, Jesus Christ, and is subsequently mistaken for the Messiah. 
The movie was banned from being shown in several jurisdictions in Britain, in several Bible Belt states in the United States, and several countries. The bans did not last and were ridiculed by others, and some, in fact, used the banning to help promote the film. In Sweden, the marketers of the film used such notoriety to benefit their marketing campaign with posters stating, so funny, it was banned in Norway. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. This negative reaction by the censors only helped to increase the mystique of the film, and it quickly became the highest-grossing British film in the United States of 1979. One of the reasons given for banning the film was the mistaken belief that it was blasphemous. If you were to think that such medieval attitudes are only found in countries such as Saudi Arabia or Iran, you might wish to consider that blasphemy is still against the law in Canada. Of course, the criminal code sanction of blasphemous libel has been superseded by the more draconian hate laws that we have in their mm. human rights tribunals. So let's take a break now and actually want to hear a little bit, uh, a bit of humor and this go back the in life time. Of Brian. Yeah. <laughs> another fact. Never in the history of the world have the merchants of obscenity, the teachers of unnatural sex acts, had available to them the modern facilities for disseminating this filth. High-speed presses, rapid transportation, mass distribution, all have combined to put the vilest obscenity within reach of every man, woman, and child in the country. In the past few years, this obscenity traffic and salacious newsstand literature have become increasingly worse, not only in content, but in volume. This traffic continues to increase and flourish for one reason. It is big business, profitable business, for the mercenary persons who produce it, and for it more than 800 distributors. The United States Supreme Court has described it as dirt for dirt's sake. We describe it as dirt for money's sake. Obscene literature is a $2 billion a year business. That's $2 billion. Through this material, today's youth can be stimulated to sexual activity for which he has no legitimate outlet. He is even enticed to enter the world of homosexuals, lesbians, sadists, masochists, and other sex deviants. The psychiatric terms for these unnatural sex acts are unknown to most decent adults in our country. But through this salacious material, 
These abnormalities are corrupting the minds and the hearts of our children. Perversion for profit. Here is the most vicious, the most insidious feature of these publications. They constantly portray abnormal sexual behavior as being normal. They glorify unnatural sex acts. They tell youngsters that it's smart, it's thrilling, it provides kicks to be a homosexual, a sadist, and every other kind of deviant. The Military Chaplains Association of the United States, practically every major fraternal, civic, and religious organization, the juvenile court judges, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, innumerable psychiatrists, sociologists, and psychologists, attribute the moral decay among our people in very large part to the obscene and pornographic literature so prevalent in our society. This moral decay weakens our resistance to the onslaught of the communist masters of deceit. Welcome back to Just Right on CJW 94.9 FM. Bob, where'd you dig that up? Oh, I tell you, that was put out by the Citizens for Decency. Uh, it's called Perversion for Profit. 1965, that was put out. Within our lifetime. And the last thing I expected to hear at the end of that diatribe was communism. <laughs> <laughs> now, just consider well, how things have changed since but, then. But consider what the guy was saying. All and the not way changed. Through. All the way through, he's attacking sex, of course. Yes. But he's talking about newsstand literature, big business, profit, mercenaries, all very capitalistic things. And then at the end he says, watch out, communism's coming. <laughs> what? Total misunderstanding <laughs> total of mix of Unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. It only goes to show that we take censorship for granted in this and country. Not, and also how, how standards have changed. The things he oh, was calling, uh, the things he was calling perverted at the time are now, you can't say that. That's politically incorrect. As a matter of fact, you'd probably be fined if yeah. you said it. Yeah. By the same people who would... <laughs> by the same by people his contemporaries. <laughs> by his contemporaries, exactly. <laughs> This, this kind of censorship has always way. been with us and always will be. Yeah. But remember that not all censorship, though, Bob, is inherently bad. Oh, censorship by the that. government can be considered incorrect in almost every instance. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Before you get your knickers in or not. Well, the just, only I'm exception, the yeah, yeah. only exception might be when uh, the government is paying the bill for something. It would have an interest in what is being said, but then again, the government shouldn't be funding arts. So it shouldn't even well, be any spending money in, in, in this at all. Now, as we heard from Rod Serling, a work of art has many people involved in it, not just the original artist, in his case, the writer. You have the studio, producers, directors, financiers, and the, the venues where the art or film is to be ex exhibited. All of these individuals and businesses have pecuniary interests in the product, and each of them, to varying degrees, can and do influence and censor, to use that word in a private mm -hmm. sense, the product to conform to their interests is not necessarily a bad thing. And then we have artists and copyright holders who may have once promoted a piece of art, but over time, with, as we just discussed and just found out, with the changing social mores, have reconsidered an artist's work and have removed it from distribution. For example, there's many Looney Tunes and Merry Melody cartoons which we'll never see again, unless, of course, you download them on the Internet. <laughs> yeah, you get the original. <laughs> because they once depicted racial stereotypes no longer acceptable to today's society. Disney's Song of the South will never be released again because of its depiction of blacks in the southern United States. This film, uh, this by the way, is, I think is a great loss since the, the movie was a fine piece of work and not unlike Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn depicts society as seen through the eyes of the people who lived in that time. 
Now, while many of us are still old enough to remember the racial undertones of the early cartoons, especially the ones produced during World War II, I'm not that old enough, which depicted uh, the enemies as uh, nips and krauts, many more still, myself included, and you're, you in this, Bob, can recall Looney Tune cartoons filled with violence, such as repeated blasting of Daffy Duck oh, sure. by uh, Elmer like, Fudd's uh, shotgun. You mean they're still not doing it? They're not doing that anymore? <laughs> nope. Expunged. Remember the pummeling? that um, a frustrated opera singer gave to Bugs Bunny with his own banjo? <laughs> Gone. That piece is cut out. And it so actually definitely just... Three Stooges would not be allowed today. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. You know, they are, but... Um... Well, how do they, without editing, if you edited them, there'd be nothing left. I know, there's nothing left, right? <laughs> Taking out those little snippets of violence um, it destroys the humor. And, uh, you know, those cartoons and those films suffered as a consequence. It's the fact that the violence was so unreal and silly that it was part of the humor. I don't know why. I, I can't really get my head around the rationale of why which you take out those. I, as a child, I grew up with it, and I found it funny at the time. People with very low levels of association. I mean, they just associate. Yeah, people who think that watching a violent uh, cartoon or a video game actually makes you go out and commit acts of violence, which the act, actually the opposite has been shown to be the case. Violence has gone down since all of this violence has happened in the cinema. And like you said before, Bob, I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word censor when conducted by private individuals. Yeah, it's, it's simply hard, it's making hard. It's not a good word for it, yeah. No. You can't just say making choices. I understand the difficulty. There's got to be a different word in there. We, yeah. We're lacking some words in the English language for even the copyright issues. Maybe you know, we'll have to make some there's up. Gotta, like, <laughs> I don't like you know, intellectual property rights. That's not the right term exactly. No. It's, it's, it's an approximation of something. Take the word property out of, that in, uh, out of copyright. And then you have an intellectual right, but even that's mm -hmm. very nebulous. Mm. Now, I can live with uh, censorship by private choice. Censorship by the state however, has always concerned me. I always have to ask myself the question, why? Why would the state be censoring a piece of art or a movie or a book? The answer always comes down to this. The people doing the censoring are using force in an attempt to influence the decision-making of the public so that society as a whole conforms to their personal view of the world. Sex, drugs, politics, and religion are all topics for great dinner conversation. Maybe not. <laughs> Those are the things you're told never to discuss That's at right. dinner. They're all topics. Because that would start a fight. <laughs> <laughs> but these same topics are all grist for the censor's mill, though. The very notion of some bureaucrat on high holding a black marker in one hand, redacting a manuscript and a revolver in the other, pointed at our collective heads, disgusts me. Stalin, Hitler, and Mao were not as subtle in their techniques as perhaps our current set of legislatures and film review board members. But our present-day statists have learned that you need not line up all the intellectuals against the wall to change the world. You only need to threaten to give a film an R rating or prevent books from, being, uh, from coming across the border because they'll tell us how to grow pot or bring someone up in front of a kangaroo human rights tribunal from making a biblical reference to homosexuality to instill a sense of foreboding and fear in society and to mold it gradually to their will. The statists of today have learned to change the way we see and interpret the world. One tribunal, one film, one book, and one word at a time. But after many decades of this subtle form of epistemological butchering, we are left with a society of like-minded drones willing to swallow any lie they may have to tell us. Bob, enter any school today. 
And you'll find students who've been brainwashed to such a degree that they are willing to believe anything their state-funded school tells them. The majority of students today, as bright as some of them are, are quick to protest in lockstep against capitalism, against eating meat, against the lies of global warming, against the non-existent Islamophobia, against almost anything the government wants them to protest against because they have grown up in a world of censorship and mind control. I still own books, and I bet you you do, Bob. Mm -hmm. do, Bob. I still own textbooks I had in elementary school. I, rem I have my f French textbook from grade two, 19, what would that be, 1966, 67? <laughs> History books, textbooks from high school I have. Um, my textbooks from university I still have. Now, most students today do not own a single textbook. They don't have it. They get by on photocopied tracks. Hence the copyright problem. Exactly. Going already. back to what you said earlier and all the, the cost associated with that, these photocopies. They have these photocopied tracks from books which had to pass through a Ministry of Education approval list. That, that scares me, too. It makes me, makes me think they're picking and choosing out of those books only what they want and rejecting the things they don't want. That's right? true. There's so the are censorship. We even, are we even seeing the textbook in its full context? That's right. You are not, as a well, matter of that, fact. That's disturbing. Right. Uh, if they don't have these photocopied tracks, maybe they have a temporary loan of a school-owned textbook, which mm -hmm. they had to return at the end of the term. They have no references with which to return to, to, to refresh their minds about facts they may have learned in school. They must now rely on their memories to remember passages that were once taught in class. It re reminds me, Bob, of the uh, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, yes. which depicted a society where censorship reached its pinnacle, where all books were outlawed, a world where a small band of rebels living on the fringe of society memorized word for word the great classics of literature so as to preserve them. Sometimes well, talk I, about copyright violation. <laughs> Sometimes, though, Bob, I feel like I'm on that fringe, that, <laughs> that rebel fringe out there on the fringe of society. Censorship, Bob, is a great evil. I agree. Censorship in the We've got to stop it. 51st degree. <laughs> but the first step in stopping it is to recognize it. That's why we're here in this show. And uh, when we see it, and believe me, it's all around us, all around us, every day, we have to stop it. I agree. That's it for this week. And we've got to head out of here right now, and we hope... You'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. So until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you then. Bye-bye. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be... One thing I like about the movies, I like the previews. like the previews? The previews are the best, aren't they? It's always that guy with that deep voice. One man, one way. One desire. Thank you. It's the weirdest voice. Eh? Action, their love, their desire. That's what I said. Desire. Imagine that guy making love. Oh, yeah. Ah. The passion in your eyes burns with desire. That's the only thing that guy could do for a living, you know? He couldn't be a mechanic or nothing, you know? Hey, how much for that uh, transmission? An arm and a leg.